So we've been in Mark, the Gospel of Action. We are now in chapter 12, today verses 18 through 34. So I encourage you to grab your Bibles and, and open them, Mark chapter 12. On April 15th, some of you will remember this, 2013, two brothers detonated two bombs at the Boston Marathon, killing three, pif- three people and injuring over 250 Three days later, they are accused of killing a policeman. On April 19th, the older brother, Tamerlan Samarev, age 26, was killed in the gun battle with the police. When it came time to make burial arrangements for Tamerlan, no cemetery would accept his body. Enter Martha Mullen. Martha Mullen learned about this on National Public Radio, and then she got involved in finding a solution. It was risky. She was criticized, and there were public protests. After being refused by dozens of cemeteries, Martha finally procured a plot, and the man's body was laid to rest in the second week of May in Doswell, Virginia. Martha... um, Mullen stated publicly on NPR radio that she was a Christian. NPR reporter Audie Cornish interviewed Martha and asked her why she as a total stranger to the Sonarna family would get involved at all, especially given the risk of being targeted by angry protesters. And here's what she said. Listen to this. This is a quote. It made me think of Jesus' words, love your enemies. Tamerlan was being maligned probably because he was Muslim. And Jesus tells us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is not just someone you get along with, but someone who is alien to you. If I'm going to live my faith, then I'm going to do that which is uncomfortable and not necessarily what's comfortable. I feel like it was the right thing, and it's important to be true to the principles of your faith. Would you be comfortable doing what Martha Mullen did? Perhaps not many Christians would be bold enough to love their neighbor as Martha did. But this is exactly what Jesus taught, to love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 34, Jesus faces two test questions, and they are to determine his intelligence. That's the purpose of these questions. And look at the passage with me. With me. The first question is the resurrection question. The situation is verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with, with a question. So in Mark chapter 12, Jesus has been approached by different groups with the intentions of tricking him, putting him into a difficult spot, making him look foolish or silly. And this is the, this is the same purpose, different group. They are the Sadducees. And they believe there's no resurrection. So they came with the question. It's not an honest question. It's an attempt to show that Jesus has inferior understanding about the Scriptures. The Sadducees are a highly educated group. They are the most educated group in Jerusalem. They were typically wealthy, which separated them from other groups and 
Pharisees were a little more working class or lower middle class if there was such a thing as a lower middle class. They were politically aligned with Herod and the Pharisees were not. Herod was aligned with Rome. The majority of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. Think about this. The most important ruling class in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, made up of various religious groups, are mostly Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels or demons. They do not believe in the life uh, ever after. They do not believe in a hereafter. So they do not believe in the concept of eternal life. They focused on the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And for them, it was like the red-letter edition. It was the most important. And the rest of scriptures, they just kind of put on a lower shelf. The question comes in verse 19. And it's a question of the Leverite marriage. It's a Leverite marriage situation. Now, you have to know, we're talking about religious stuff here, but lever is a word for your brother's, uh, for, for a man's brother. That's a lever, okay? So we're talking about a specific technical question in the Old Testament. It's about a Leverite marriage. So here it comes, verse 19. Teacher, the Sadducees said, Moses wrote for us that if a, and so Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books. Those were the authority according to the Sadducees. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves the wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow raise, uh, and raise up offspring for his brother. This is true, and this is called the Leverite marriage. The book of Ruth, some of you know, illustrates this, and it's the concept of the kinsman redeemer uh, for the Leverite marriage. The purpose of this marriage was to continue the family line of the dead brother. Frankly, I'm glad that, uh, you know, this isn't still in place today. But it was in the Old Testament, and it was for preserving the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's stated in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers are living together, and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. So there's a prohibition for the woman. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The goal would be to have a son, to have children and have a son. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that uh, his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So that was the goal, was to have a son for the brother. This was not a very popular law in the Old Testament, as some men may think it would be. It was not, for a number of different reasons. Try to talk your wife into bringing in your sister-in-law. Okay. So this is a hypothetical case. Look at verses 20 through 23. Uh, the, The Sadducees, in asking their question, are trying to be sincere um, as if uh, Jesus isn't going to have a clue on how to figure this out. Here's what they say. Now, here's the case. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. 
It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So they think this, you know, this might have even been a joke. They got, it's a Leverite marriage. Okay, just right out of Scripture. And not only is it once, but there's seven times and it fails. Seven marriages. This poor woman had to put up, in the story, had to put up with seven men. Everybody dies. She dies. All seven die. And the, the, the goal is they're going to try to confuse Jesus. He won't be able to keep track of this. And Jesus comes back with a strong answer, verses 24 through 27. Here's the problem, he said. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? How would you like to have Jesus speak to you like that? And he's speaking to the most educated religious leaders in Israel. Hey, guys, the problem's yours. You have the wrong assumptions. You don't know the scriptures. Uh, You don't know the power of God. You have a knowledge problem since you are the most educated group. It's pretty sharp rebuke here. Verse 25, the explanation, here's what Jesus said, and he's going to answer this. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus is giving new information about the resurrection, never been revealed before. And he's given it to these uh, Sadducees. They have the wrong assumption. They believe that in the afterlife, you're just, you're dead. There's no life. There's no eternal life. There's no, uh, no resurrection, no consciousness. It's just sleep. You're dead. You're done. It's over. Lights out. A lot of people believe that way today, don't they? And this uh, highly educated group had come to that conclusion. Jesus said marriage is not going to be the same after the resurrection. It's going to be different. The wrong assumption you have is that, to the Sadducees is that you think if there is such a thing that they don't believe in the resurrection, if there is such a thing, then it must be just like here. There must be, we must have all of these physical bodies and physical issues and physical desires, and um, there's going to be marriage in heaven. It's, And just like on earth, just the same on earth. It's a wrong assumption. Not only that, he said they're going to be like the angels in heaven. They don't even believe in the angels. And Jesus is saying, marriage is going to be like that. So wives, that means you're going to be married to somebody that's like an angel. Hang in there. Finally, I know that will encourage Sue. So, Um, Marriage will no longer exist as we know it. No more courtship. No more wedding ceremonies. No more divorces. No more sex. It's not going to be like that in heaven, Jesus says. Married people will be like angels. Not angels. Wrong doctrine here. Some people want to jump right there. That Jesus said we're going to be, you know, like we're going to have like wings in heaven. No. We're not going to be angels, but we're going to bear some similarities in the way they are focused and serve God in the spiritual realm. They will be, uh, another way to say it is, you in the resurrection 
will be totally fulfilled and totally devoted to serving the true and living God. Because in heaven, we won't need to repopulate the earth with babies. And that, that was a major purpose of marriage uh, from creation. So, let's look at the resurrection in the Old Testament. And Jesus is speaking to a group that deny this concept of the resurrection. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 26. Mark chapter 12, verse 26. Oh, we'll just have to look at the text. I'm jumping ahead. Um, Now about the dead rising. So Jesus is going to talk about the resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses? he's, He's asking these scholars, haven't they read their own book? The book of Moses. He's even going to use the Pentateuch, the first five books, as his authority because it's their authority. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, how God said to him, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus is expecting his audience to just understand this and to get this. Uh, What was God saying to to Moses? Um, Think about this. Moses lived in... uh, 1450 or 1500 BC. Just get that ballpark. God is speaking in this time period to a man named Moses. The true and living God speaks to Moses and he makes a reference to three other men. He makes a reference to Abraham, who lived about 2100 BC. He made an reference to Abraham's son Isaac, who lived about 1950 BC around those time periods. And then he, he, he made a reference to uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who lived around 1800 B.C. And God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. I, it's not I was their God. I am their God right this minute. And for Jesus, where he's going to go with this is, I am still their God and they're still alive. I am still Abraham's God. I'm still Isaac's God. I'm still Jacob's God. And I am Moses' God. Now, we're going to come back to this. But I'd like to do a little survey. A little survey of the Old Testament on the resurrection. Because, you know what? We rarely ever talk about this. I just want you to get a little uh, survey here. Uh, Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. An early reference to... Uh, the resurrection. This is Job, and he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's a pretty well-known verse right there. Maybe you didn't know it came from Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. By the way, the Redeemer happens to be Jesus. Verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed, death, yet in my flesh I will see God. There is a hope here, goes beyond the grave, Beyond death, and it's in the flesh. If this was the only verse in the Bible, I wouldn't know. But the clues point clearly to the resurrection as you see it unfold. I myself will see him, Job Job says, with my own eyes. And I, not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job has a glimpse of the resurrection. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. This is a messianic psalm. Not a messy psalm, but a song about the Messiah. It's, it's something that probably Jesus was meditating on, perhaps when he was on the cross. He knew the scriptures really well. 
We know this refers clearly to Jesus because the Apostle Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2 in referring to Jesus being in the grave and not suffering decay. He says in verse 8, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Next slide. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. No decay for Jesus. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus, that there will be a body raised from the grave. Isaiah 26, verse 19. We're doing the survey. Isaiah 26. But This is a prophecy. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Isaiah is a picture of the resurrection, that bodies will be raised from the grave. I just want you to see what the Old Testament says. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Michael, the great prince, Michael the archangel, who protects your people, the people of Israel, will arise, Daniel's people, There will be a time of distress. This is the end times, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Next slide. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The Jewish people understood clearly that this was a a reference to the resurrection. Um, now let's uh, look at a couple of passages in the New Testament, the resurrection according to Jesus. Jesus taught about this in his ministry. John chapter uh, 5, verses 28 through 29. Jesus said, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming, future, just like Daniel, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done what is good will rise, rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to to be condemned. Resurrection is the reference. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. We've looked at this passage. Jesus said in Mark up to this point three times that he would rise from the dead. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus taught that he would be raised from the grave after his death. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. We're still doing the survey, so hang with me. Jesus said to her, Martha, this is right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is going to get a physical resurrection. It's not the resurrection uh, in the future. It's just it was a miracle. But before he did the miracle, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is actually teaching the resurrection there, and he's saying, I am the resurrection. He's going to personify it, and he's going to show the whole world what this means. Two more passages. The Apostle Paul, the resurrection and the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter, 58 verses, is about the resurrection and the Christian. 
So go there for your study about the resurrection. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Very simply, the Apostle Paul logically explains that if the resurrection didn't happen, there is no resurrection, then you're dead in your sins, you're going to hell, and it really doesn't make any difference about anything. That's how big a deal this is. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. It's central to who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay? And then one more, 1 Corinthians 15 to 42. So this is sort of toward the end, not the final, but a kind of a conclusion. So what will be with the resurrection of the dead? The body, the physical body that is sown perishable because our physical bodies tend to decay and when we put them in the grave, they turn to dust. It is sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. It won't be destroyed. cannot be destroyed. It is sown in dishonor because it's going to rot and decay. It is raised in glory. It's going to be new. And Jesus had a glorious body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It will be changed. It will be glorious. It will be some kind of body like Jesus had after the resurrection. So with all of that, now that you've had a survey on the resurrection, I want you to see it's really a biblical concept. We come to the strong conclusion, verse 27. Jesus had just reminded his audience of Moses, what God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 27. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. That's what he said to the Sadducees. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one thing we need to understand, the promise of eternal life for Jesus includes the resurrection. There is no separation in the concept of eternal life and the promises of God. We Western Americans tend to want to divide things out, not so the Jewish mindset. If there's going to be a resurrection there's going to be a total resurrection. That was the concept. The timing was the issue because not everybody got raised in the Old Testament because it was all about Jesus coming the first time and it's all about Jesus coming the second time and then there will be a resurrection. So the promise of eternal life includes the promise of the resurrection. Jesus leaves them. The Sadducees are badly, badly mistaken. And I wouldn't have wanted to have been there. I wouldn't have wanted to have been a Sadducee on that day. The commandment question. Next question, verses 28 through 34. This is our final question. It's a little bit shorter. The situation is verses, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. So he's going to ask a question. This is a teacher of the law. This is a Pharisee. This is not a Sadducee. Pharisees were more popular. They were conservative. They were uh, actionary. Not necessarily as educated as well as, uh, which is neither here nor there, but it's not necessarily as educated. They were not wealthy either as the Sadducees. So he overhears Jesus. Uh, he's impressed by what Jesus has to say. And um, so he has, I just, out of curiosity, he wants to ask Jesus more. He's not trying to trick Jesus. We don't get that here. He's, he has an honest question. He just wants to see how Jesus is tracking. 
The question is, he asked him, verse 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus probably got asked questions like this more than once in his ministry. Um, people would come up and ask, he, you know, he, he, you should have been here yesterday. He answered that yesterday, or he answered that last week. But there were common questions. And this is one that came up more than once. Um, of all the commandments, which is the most important Of all the commandments, Jesus, there are 613. Maybe you don't know that. Which one of those 613 is most important? There were 365 negative commandments in the Old Testament, and there were 248 positive commands in the Old Testament. Which is the most important? Well, they're all all important, right? Uh, Actually... Some carry more weight than others, and that's the point right here. All sin is sin. All sin is not equal. Um, so the answer comes in verses 29 through 31. The first commandment, verse 29 through 30. I, I know you'd probably like to hear me sing the first commandment, but that will not work. Um, Mark chapter 29, Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. The Lord, most important one, answered Jesus. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, this was a part of a, a, a creed that the Jewish man would say every morning and every night. This was a commitment to the true and living God. Hear, O Israel. It's not just hear and, and make sure you pay attention and hear the words. Hear means hear, understand, and obey. It means to get in line. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is unique. He is separate. He's not like any God in the world. He's not like the gods of the Romans or the gods of the Greeks or any foreign god. There is only one. And then comes the command in verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. It means to love the Lord totally. We have a tendency to want to separate out this concept of parts. And we can do that but it's about total devotion to the one who loves you. First of all, love him with all your heart because the heart is the control center of a person's life. It's a control center of your life. So love him with all that you are. Love him with all your soul. This is uh, your self-conscious life. This is your emotional life where you experience life. Love him with all your soul, totally, total being. Love him with all your mind. This is your thought capacity, your intellect. Love him. Give your energy of your mind and your thinking to him. Love him with all your strength, your physical body, your physical strength. Give yourselves totally to him. This love is personal. It's not just, okay, Israel, you should love the Lord your God. It's you as an individual And Jesus makes this for us. Jesus, this applies to the church today, to us. 
It's about our response back. It's not just what does the church do, but it's about what we do as individual people. It is personal. It is comprehensive. It's, with, it's wholehearted. It results in obedience. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Second commandment, verse 31. The second is this. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So Jesus quotes uh, Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. It it assumes, this commandment assumes a proper self-love a proper self-care. It assumes that you're going to care for yourself, that, that you need rest, and you, and you need to you know, take a bath once in a while, and you need clean clothes, and you need food. There, there are necessities that you need, and it assumes that, and you're going to take care of yourself, and you're going to, you're going to try to be healthy. And uh, the command says, love your neighbor that way too. Be aware of your neighbor's needs and be ready to show kindness to your neighbor. Jesus illustrated this story with the Good Samaritan. And uh, Martha Mullen illustrated this with helping a Muslim family bury their son. So here's a question for you. Who has God placed in your life that needs your help? That needs you to do something to be involved in their life? Is God prompting you to do something to love your neighbor. A person in your world that has a need. If you can't think of anybody, who will God put in your life tomorrow that's going to cross your path? Maybe they need to hear the gospel message. Maybe they need just something practical, some help. The affirmation comes in verses 32 through 33. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is the one and there is no other, no other but him. So this teacher is now going to affirm Jesus for having the right answer. And the good thing is, you know, he's not critical of Jesus. He's not making fun of Jesus. He, he appreciates what Jesus has to say. Verse 33, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your... Uh, Neighbor as yourself. By the way, the, the man wouldn't say, love the Lord. Because a Jewish man would be careful not to say God's name. And so he would talk around it. He would mean that, but he would talk around it so that he wouldn't sin with his lips. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important, and he adds this, than, than burn offerings and sacrifices. And this is quite an insight on his part uh, in his day to be able to say these are more important than sacrificial offerings, than the blood of animals. Verse um, 34, the kingdom perspective, Mark 12, verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not. I bet Jesus was almost smiling you're not far. You're close. But you're not there yet. You're not in the kingdom of God. You don't have that personal relationship yet. But you're not far. Because this, this guy is thinking biblically. He's thinking scripturally. He's, he's uh, listening to what Jesus is saying. He's watching what Jesus is doing. And Jesus says, you're close. You're so Close. The king is standing right there. 
And all he has to do is say, tell me more, tell me more. How do I enter the kingdom of God? That's what Nicodemus came to Jesus tonight to ask that question. So, two greatest commandments, according to Jesus. Love God. So, how are you doing in your relationship with God? How are you expressing? It's personal. How are you demonstrating your personal relationship with God? Living your personal relationship with God? Are you, you are in a growth mode. Are you growing? You know, if you love somebody, you spend time with them, you listen to them, you talk to them. And that's why we have the scriptures, so we can hear what God says to us. That's, that's why we can pray, so we can talk to God, so we can have a relationship. And if we love him, if we value him, then we do what he says. I want to go back to the resurrect, resurrection question and make a couple of observations. The Bible says a lot about the resurrection. I hope you caught that this morning. Jesus said a lot about the resurrection. We didn't show you all the passages. We just highlighted. Here's what I want to say. When you think about heaven and you think about the resurrection, be careful. You do not create heaven in your image. It's so easy to do, to start thinking about how great it is. There's going to be no more tears and no more dying and no more pain. It's going to be great. But it's not about you. The center will be the God of the universe. And that's why we're going to be there. It's not going to be about us. It's going to be about him. We have a tendency to think about heaven and our friends and our family, and we, it's almost like we pull it off without the most important one present. And it affects our outlook on the future. The second thing I want to say is, the enemy has his own version of the resurrection. Think about where I'm going to go with this. The enemy has his own version about people coming back to life after they're dead. Where people have supernatural powers, they come back as vampires and werewolves and zombies and other things. And here's what I want to say. Some people are more infatuated Some Christians are more infatuated with the enemy's plan than what God has intended in the resurrection and eternal life. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you uh, for the life of Jesus Christ and how much we've had the opportunity to see how Jesus communicates and relates. Thank you for the wisdom of the scriptures and the wisdom of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege to know Jesus. God, we look forward to one day that there will be a resurrection. I confess I don't understand it all. But it's true. One day we'll have a resurrected body. We know Jesus as Savior. And we'll be face-to-face with each other and face-to-face with Jesus. And we'll meet our Heavenly Father. God, may we uh, keep our focus on that which is important and that which is first. And then, Father, um, you tell us how to care for each other and how to love each other and how to love our neighbors. Some of those neighbors we don't like. 
Sometimes they are enemies, and sometimes they have big needs. Empower us, God, and show us how to love our neighbors for Jesus' sake. Amen.